I'm going to ask you a question this morning. How many of you have ever been sailing? Let me see your hands. Okay, now, folks, I'm not talking about Princess Royal Caribbean or Disney or Norwegian. I'm talking about a real sailboat with real sails. Let me see. Whoa, you guys have actually been on a sailboat. You know, I have been sailing in Charlotte Harbor with a 10-foot Hobie kayak. That, that does count. <laughs> well, this morning, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 27, who is finally on his way to Rome, and he doesn't walk there. He goes on a sailboat. We're going to be looking this morning as Paul makes his way to Rome, and the ship that he is on comes into a very powerful storm. As a matter of fact, towards the end of that, the sailors were about ready to abandon ship when Paul stood up and gave some powerful words of encouragement. I would like for us to read just a short part of this chapter, verses 1 through 15, and then we'll pray and we'll tell the story of Paul's going to Rome. And when it was decided that We should sail to Italy. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So, entering a ship of a a dramatum, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, The wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed into the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lacia. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Father, we bow in your presence as we look at this this story in Acts 27 of a navigation to Rome. But Father, it's much more than a, a wonderful nautical story. It's also a message of hope, a message of warning, 
a message that we can learn so much from. So I pray that through the power of your spirit, you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, one of the most exciting passages in the New Testament. It is a detailed sea voyage. And this is uh, something that I'd like to share with you today. We're going to look at a map uh, behind us and try to give you an idea where this voyage happened. Of course, it starts and it go from, uh, as they sail towards Rome, they start out in Caesarea and go to Sidon. Now, I know that's a little bit difficult, but way down there is Caesarea. That's where Paul was in prison for these two years. And they had kept him. And remember uh, the Sanhedrin and Felix and Festus and Agrippa and all those trials. And now it's time to go to Rome. But instead of going straight across from Caesarea all the way to, to Rome this way, they take a different route up north. First of all, they go from Sidon all the way to Myra. Now that's the first part of this voyage from Caesarea to Sidon. Now, after hearing Festus and Agrippa, Paul was placed in custody of a centurion. Now, anytime you see centurions in the New Testament, most of the time they have a good, um, the Bible gives them a good report about them. This centurion was named Julius or Julian, and he was put on a ship sailing for Rome, but Paul was not alone on that ship. There was another believer there by the name of Aristarchus, who was a believer from Thessalonica. He was there as Paul's traveling companion. And if you'll notice in this passage, there's many we, we sailed, we went there. And of course, that indicates that the author, Luke, was with Paul too on this they also had other prisoners with them. Now, these prisoners were going to Rome. Now, why were they going to Rome? Well, they were probably headed to Rome because they were going to be executed. And the preferred method of execution during this time for these type of prisoners was in the Colosseum, where they would have them become gladiators, of course, these, these people were not trained gladiators. They, they were just killed for sport. So a lot of these prisoners that were there, we don't know how many of them were prisoners and how many were sailors and all that. But at the end, we find that there's 276 passengers on board this ship. On this ship. So these prisoners are there with Paul. So instead of sailing straight across the Mediterranean, they go north towards Sidon, probably to unload some cargo up there and perhaps to pick up um, some supplies there. In verse 3, we find that the centurion was very gracious, as he says, the next day we landed at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. So they, they get off the ship and Paul is able, he's got some believers, friends that lived in Sidon and perhaps he went there to maybe pick up some clothes or some food or some supplies for the long trip and he was able to fellowship with those believers and then get some encouragement as he goes from Caesarea to Sidon. Well, after he leaves there, as we see in verse 4, when they put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Now, let's look at the map once again here as we see this 
going under the lee of Cyprus. This is Cyprus, the island there, and the lee would be the less windy side. So they go around and they go to Myra. Now they're now in Myra, and as they get there in verse 5, and when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. So they're changing, they got a layover. You ever do that? You ever get a layover and you have to change planes or whatever? And they got a, a different ship because this ship was going to go further north because uh, through the Aegean Sea and up there. But this Alexandria, does anybody know what uh, country Alexandria is in? Egypt. And Egypt was the breadbasket of the world in the ancient world. So what they probably did is they got aboard this, this Egyptian Alexandrian ship that was probably loaded with grain. And it was going to feed the Roman Empire. So that grain was headed towards Rome. So they found this ship and they end their layover and they get on board and they... Sail slowly for many days as the winds were contrary, and they make it to this island called Crete. Now, the season is for sailing is getting into wintertime when the winds are not favorable, and they finally make it to a place on the island of Crete called Fair Havens. Verse 8 Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lacia. Now, they're there and it's getting towards the end. The feast here is probably referring to the feast that was in September, October. Now, after that, it's basically nobody goes out onto the ocean. Well, they're getting close to that and they thought that they could make it. Let's look at that map once, once again. They thought they could make it not only from Fair Havens right there, just a little bit to right there at the end of Crete, which is Phoenix. Now, I was in Phoenix two weeks ago, and it's not the same Phoenix, okay? Uh, that's in the United States, and this is in the Mediterranean Sea. But they called it Phoenix, and there had a better place to spend the winter. So the only plan to go from Fair Havens over there. And then in verses 9 through 12, we see that Paul warns them. He gives them a warning in these verses of Scripture. He says in verse 9, and when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast, the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, where did Paul get this information? It's not that he was, you know, as experienced. He had some idea of sailing. But I believe that God had revealed this to him. He knew that if we leave here, it's going to be bad news. So he tells these people. He tells the captain. He tells the centurion. He tells the owner of the ship, says, hey, guys, there's something about this is not right. We, we better stay where we are. 
Well, you know how that goes, and uh, they voted him down. As a matter of fact, uh, it was a three-to-one vote. (laughs) The centurion said, no, I think we can go. The owner of the ship says, hey, we got to get this grain over to to Rome. We've got to make some money out of this deal. And, of course, the captain says, I think, you know, if we we can just get to Phoenix and, and spend the winter there, we'll be all right. So... Paul, who had an intimate walk with the Lord and was sensitive to the leadings of the Lord, says there's going to be disaster. You're going to lose the cargo. You're going to lose this ship if we take off any further from here. Well, they tried to make it to Phoenix. Let's see what happens in verse uh, 11 or 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. Verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Well, what happened was the south wind was starting to blow. And say, hey, this is perfect. The wind will be at our backs. Everything is just perfect. We'll, we'll make it to that harbor there in Phoenix. Well, as soon as they got away, as the wind was parting from them, then something terrible happened. The wind changed directions, and they were hit with a northeasterner. The, the Bible describes that wind as Euryclidon, and Luke describes it as typhonic. He uses the Greek word for typhoon. And you and I know what tropical storms are, you know. And just imagine, you know, as we have this tropical storm just happened uh, around July, and it was about 30 miles off of, uh, imagine being in a boat with a tropical storm. Especially it wasn't a cruise ship, you know, it was actually with sails and everything. And that's, that's exactly what happened. They were hit with that wind, even though they thought the wind was at their back. You know, the world blows upon our lives as a gentle south wind, sometimes blowing softly. Sometimes we think that decisions are easy to make and everything seems to be favorable and comfortable. Maybe I love this person. Maybe I should marry this person. I know that they're not a believer, but they love me and I can win them to the Lord after we're married. You know, it just seems logical. Maybe I should take this job. I know it might cause me to compromise my morals, but man, look at the paycheck that I'm going to get. You know, the soft wind blows softly of worldly influences on our life. But you know what happens when you think that everything is going your way and that all these decisions that humanly speaking, then you're going to be hit and your ship is going to wreck at the end. Well, they hit the wind in verse 14. Luke calls it typhonic. Their plans to stop in Phoenix for winter are dashed as they just have to let the ship be driven at the mercy of the storm. The crew had to let the ship drift because it was impossible to steer it in that that typhoon type of a wind, and the wind drove it 23 miles to the south. Let's look at that uh, map once again to see where the, the ship. They 
were hit with the wind just as they were leaving from Fair Havens and they were driven and they, they went 23 miles and they got to this other island that the map doesn't show that they got underneath of there just long enough so that they could secure the ship. Look at verse 15. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, or Cauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. Now the skiff was the little boat, uh, kind of the lifeboat that they, uh, ships always carried behind them in, in order to get closer to land. And they secured that. They had to bring it up there or it was going to be tossed in the waves and be gone. They, they secured the skiff, verse 17. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. They put ropes or some kind of chains around that ship to tie it so that the boards would be more secure and that wouldn't come apart. They, they were afraid that they were going to hit the shallow sands of the Sirtis. In other words, a sandbar. They were going to be stuck in that. So they were, in verse 18, we were exceedingly tempest-tossed. The next day they lightened the ship. Now, what was probably the heaviest thing on the ship was the sacks of grain that they had had on that going to. And if you would lighten the ship, it would be less likely to sink. So they could make a little more progress and it wouldn't be on the sandbar. So they threw out the grain and they lightened the ship, verse 19, on the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Probably the navigation equipment, it must have weighed uh, quite a bit. So they threw that overboard. And it says in verse 20, now when the wind, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us and all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. Many days not seeing the sun or moon, all hope was lost. Everyone on board, we're going to die. This is it. We're not going to make it. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that when your life was at stake and, and you were terrified. Just imagine the terror that was on board of those. Even the sailors, these experienced sailors, had no hope. But in the middle of that storm... And three days not seeing the sun or the moon, Paul stands up and he speaks a word from God into the midst, midst of this hopelessness and panic in verse 21. This is what he says. But after long abstinence from food, you, could, you, you think that, uh, wonder why they weren't eating? Have you ever been on a boat when it was rocking? I remember going on Lake Michigan one time fishing for salmon and I had a Slim Jim for breakfast. That was the worst thing that I ever did. So the reason they didn't eat is because they were so sick. But in verse 21, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. 
You think that Paul was giving them, I told you so. I don't think that he was saying it just so, hey, I was right, you guys were wrong. No, I think that he was giving a platform for what he was going to tell them next. He was showing them that he had a connection with the Lord and God was giving him some information that they were about to hear that they need to listen to. In verse 22, he says, And now I urge you to take heart, be encouraged, don't give up the ship, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Nobody is going to die. I can imagine that when they were so hopeless, the sailors, the prisoners, the soldiers, the centurion, the ship owner, hearing this from a guy who's already told us that we're going to be in this trouble, we should have not, they're saying that you don't have to worry no one is going to die. He gave hope to them when everything looked hopeless. Take heart. No one's going to lose their ship. Only, only the ship and the cargo is going to be destroyed. Why? Why was he able to say this? Notice in verse 23, he says, For there stood by me this night an angel of God whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. Indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Take heart, men. Take heart, men. You know that God has spoken to me, he said. An angel of the Lord came and gave me a message from God that you, Paul, you're going to stand before Caesar and God has granted the lives of everyone here in this. The ship is going to be destroyed, but you're all going to live. And then he ends that whole saying, I believe God. I tell you, I, I think that there is a powerful message right there for all of us who are children of God. God, Paul was speaking God's revelation. In other words, God's word to these people. The way you're going is wrong, but there is hope. And that's the message that God's given us. The way that you think is best for your life, there's a, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. But God has given us his word and he's called us to speak truth, to speak words of warning and words of hope to this lost generation. Well, let's see what happens as Paul gives them this word in verse 25, verse 26. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Verse 27, now when the 14th night had come, two weeks they have been in this terrible situation. The 14th night had come as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea. Now, where is the Adriatic Sea? Let's look back at our map here and find out. Well, he's there, and they go through this thing for 14 days, and they are getting here in the Adriatic Sea, which is around Italy. So they come all this way, and now they're coming close to this island there of Malta. 
Let's see what happens in these verses of Scripture. In verse 28, it says, And they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. They're getting close to land. So they let out a rope with a lead on the other end to see if they touch bottom, and they're getting shallower and shallower. And you know, when you got a big ship like that, you got to be careful because if you get stranded on a sandbar, you could lose your life and drown in the sea. So they're very careful about that. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, we're about ready to see some uh, sailors say, hey, let's get out of here. Let's skedaddle. Let's take that, that raft or that boat and get out of here because this ship is going to be torn up. Let's, let's get out of there. When they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall down. In other words, they, their uh, escape was cut short. Verse 33, And as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day. You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment. For this is your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. So he's saying, Hey, you know, the, the weather is calm. We're going to live. You guys better get something to eat. You're going to need strength for getting out of this boat here. Verse 35, And when they had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Unashamed to pray right in front of all these pagans, all these Roman soldiers and, and everyone. He prays publicly and thanks God for the food that they're about to eat. Verse 36, then they were all encouraged and took food themselves. And in all, there were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the weed into the sea. They threw out everything else. Well, that leads us to the third, uh, the second part of this, the shipwreck on Malta in verses 39 to 44. Well, in verse 39, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they had planned to run the ship if possible. The preparation for landing. They spot land. They see a bay with a beach, and they prepare to land. So what they do is they cut the lines for the anchors that they had anchored the ship so that they could be stable. They cut the lines, and they let the rudder go, and hoisted the sail in order to get as close to land as possible. But in verse 41, we see the wreck. But striking a place where two seas met. Now, uh, other translations of Scripture have a more accurate uh, understanding of where they struck ground. They actually strike a reef. If you've ever been uh, struck on a reef, you know what damage that thing can do. And they struck a reef. They ran the ship aground. And the prow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. The back of the ship was being torn up as they are struck on that reef. And the soldier's plan, this is what the soldier's plan to do was, to kill the prisoners 
lest any of them should swim away and escape. <laughs> oh boy. Now, you got the sailors trying to escape. Now, they're worried about the prisoners escaping. Why were the soldiers so worried about these prisoners escaping? You know what? There's a, a law in the Roman soldiers during that time that if you, if the prisoner you were guarding escaped under your watch, you had to take his sentence. So that's why these soldiers would, let's kill them now, <laughs> so that we would not be held accountable if they escaped. Well, Paul gives them some words of encouragement. In verse 43, we read, But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, who was a prisoner, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim jump overboard first and get to land. See, there's the beach out there. If you can swim, swim for it. If you can't swim, there's some boards around there. Uh, have you ever had a uh, plane? Um, when you're on the airplane, the, the stewardess gives you these things, and, and most people are not even listening to them. And they said, in case of a water landing, your life uh, preserver is under your seat. Just think of it. If that airplane crashes in the water, I don't think there's going to be many people left alive. But one time I, I tried to reach under my seat to feel if that life preserver was there. Well, the life preservers aboard this ship were only the broken boards and the pieces of the ship. And the rest of the guys that couldn't swim got a one of those and they had like a boogie board and they were making their way to the shore on those broken pieces. So what good news was in verse 44, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. What an amazing, amazing sea voyage here. Tremendous nautical account. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful story, but it's so much more. And as we conclude here, I'd like for us to learn some valuable lessons that we can learn about steering through the storm. The first lesson is we need to understand that storms are allowed by God. It wasn't Paul's fault that he was on this shipwreck. He told him, as a matter of fact, God says the ship is going to and he was outvoted. Sometimes we encounter difficulties that are not our fault at all. You get sick. You, you have a death in the family. You have trouble happening at work and you didn't do anything wrong. And that is a part of life. As a matter of fact, the Lord does not always deliver us from the storms of life. Nor does he promise to do so. Sometimes we experience severe storms where we realize that we have no control, no control over the situation. Sometimes we feel that our own life is out of control and we're driven by the winds of circumstances. We need to remember what God says. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. And even Jesus says, In me you'll have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome 
the world. The storm was not Paul's fault. They encountered the storm because of the foolishness of others. But Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus had to go through it as well. Just like Joseph was thrown into the pit. Just like Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Don't be surprised. Don't be shaken. Don't be discouraged when you face a headwind. Sometimes it's God's design in your life. Second application. Remember that God has a purpose for your life. The angel reminded Paul that it's going to be rough here, but I'm not done with you yet. You're going to stand before Caesar. You're also in this storm. You are going to witness to these people. Some of them are prisoners that are going to die. And you have a purpose of not only speaking the truth, but modeling the truth with your calm behavior in this storm. God has a reason and a purpose for your life. God's not done with you yet, my friend. No matter how hard the wind blows in your life, he's not done with using you yet. The third lesson, lean hard upon God's promises. When God, through the angel, told Paul, all those who sail with you will be spared. You know, Paul didn't have to check on his Wink News app on his cell phone to see which way the wind was blowing. The Lord came to Paul and told him, cheer up. It's not over, Paul. There's a couple musts. You must appear before Caesar and you must be cast on a certain island, but you're going to make it. You're going to make it. You know, that's one thing that we have the assurance of God's word. Folks, the Lord has promised if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to make it all the way to heaven. You're going to make it. Nothing is going to stop you. You can't even stop yourself if you're a genuine believer in Christ. You will make it to that shore, that golden shore. But sometimes it's on broken boards and pieces of the ship. And you're dog paddling in the, against the headwind. But the Lord never promised a, a smooth ride to heaven. Lean hard upon God's promise. Learn to shout what Paul shouted in the storm. I believe God. Fourth lesson. Be the source of encouragement for others. Paul was going through the storm with them. Those who have or are encountering the same trials are fitted to be a great source of encouragement to others. You know, believers who have gone through the wind and the storms and the, all kinds of things are best fitted to help others because they've been there. They know what they're going through. Those of you who've lost loved ones know how God got you through it, and you can help somebody else who's struggling with that. Those of you who are, are struggling physically with certain types of in, illnesses or extended stays or healings, you can offer words of hope and encouragement to others. That's Paul being the source of encouragement. He gave them practical advice. Have something to eat. Stay aboard the ship. He was the example himself of calm assurance and being unrattled. He spoke words of warning 
and words of hope. Early in the 17th century, England and Spain and Holland and even tiny Portugal had established themselves as major naval powers. Sweden was not among those great powers on the sea. They had some single-deck ships that were typically found on the Baltic, but none of the great men-of-war ships. So the king, King Gustav Adolphus, decided it was time to establish Sweden as a major naval power. So in 1626, he commissioned a warship that would be perhaps the greatest ship of his era and certainly the most magnificent vessel in the Swedish Navy. It was named the Vasa. King Gustav Adolphus' ego demanded that the ship be the biggest, the best armed, and above all, the most beautiful. He was the one who designed the ship. He added great statues and other heavy ornaments to the Vasa. Worse, he added the second deck of extremely heavy guns to that ship. The result was a top-heavy vessel. Gustav Adolphus may have been a good king, but he was a lousy engineer. The ballast, which have been, would have been sufficient for the original design, was no match for the weight that had been added above the waterline. When the Vasa was nearing completion, the Swedish admiral began to have serious doubts about the seaworthiness of this boat. So they ran a test. They went out there just a, a mile from shore, and they had some of the soldiers... Uh, that were sailors that were on there to run to one side of the boat and it started leaning one day and they had them run to the other side of the boat and that was kind of a, a sign that it wasn't uh, very good. So they could fix it. The keel could have been deepened. More ballast could have been added to account for the above water changes but that would mean a significant delay in the ship's launch. And the king made it clear that he was in a hurry to get the Vasa on the seas. The 30 years war had been raging for 10 years. Believing that his new ship was a game changer, he wanted it in the battle as soon as possible. Even though it was obvious the Vasa was a disaster waiting to happen, nobody had the courage to tell the king. <laughs> August 18th, the Vasa launched, right on schedule, with much fanfare. The Vasa left the slip and sailed out into the Stockholm Harbor. The sailors and passengers and some of the families of the ship's officers waved from the deck. It was a pleasant day with a slight breeze. The ship had not traveled a mile when a slight gust of wind caught the sails. That one gust pushed the Vasa dangerously toward its port side. The sailors scrambled to run over on the other, and the ship managed to right itself. But no sooner was it up, upright again that a second gust of wind knocked it over again, and water rushed into the open gun ports. And within minutes, Sweden's great naval hope was a hundred feet below the surface of Stockholm Harbor, more than 30 people died. Why? Nobody. They were all afraid to tell the king. Folks, we have the word of God. People are in danger. They're lost. They're out on life's sea with no hope. We need to have the courage, not only to give them a word of warning, 
but also to give them a word of hope. We have the gospel. Let's be sure we tell them and help them to steer through the storm. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you very much for your precious word and thank you for this, this wonderful story about Paul on his way to Rome. You weren't done with him yet and God, you're not done with us yet. Give us the moral courage to talk to our friends and our family that they're not going to make it without Jesus. There's no way that they can sail through this life And make it to that other shore without knowing Christ as Savior. May we give them hope and may we model that calm assurance that we are your children. Father, speak to hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.